This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to episode 455 of IAQ Radio. It's Friday, April 7th, 2017. And this week, we welcome Dr. Christine Oliver. She's calling in from Massachusetts. We're going to talk a little bit about fragrances and multiple chemical sensitivities and mold and occupational health. That's going to be a great show. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Congratulations to Richard Alexis, Accurate Building Inspections, Hollywood, Florida, for the first correct answer to last week's IEQ Radio Trivia Question. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for today, Friday, April 7, 2017, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IQ Radio trivia question. What is the etymology of the word allergy? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Okay, this week we welcome Christine Oliver, MD, to the show. Dr. Oliver is the president of Occupational Health Initiatives in Brookline, Massachusetts. She's an associate physician in the Department of Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital and Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School in Boston. Board certified in occupational medicine and internal medicine, Dr. Oliver's primary specialty is occupational and environmental medicine with an emphasis on occupational and environmental lung disease. At the uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, she evaluates and cares for patients with occupational and environmental illness and disease, including occupational asthma, interstitial lung disease, building-related health problems, and chemical sensitivities. Dr. Oliver has done research and published in the area of occupational lung disease, and she has testified before the United States Congress with regard to work-related health issues and risks. 
from the oh, she got her MD from the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, then did residency in the Bronx, followed by work as a primary care physician before doing an occupational medicine residency at the Harvard School of Public Health. And uh, Dr. Oliver, do we have you on the line? Yes, you do. Great, welcome. It's it's great to talk to you a little bit here. I'm, I'm curious. What what led to you going from uh, being a you know primary care physician and, and getting into the occupational medicine and IAQ related issues? Well, my principal area of interest all along, from my first day as an intern when I was assigned to the intensive care unit, and I spent about two weeks in the ICU looking at people who were dying of potentially preventable diseases, and I decided at that point that I did not want to be at that end of patient care and that I'd rather be on the other end, that is, I'd rather be able to prevent illness and disease from occurring in the first place. That just made a lot more sense to me for a whole host of reasons. And so I I went into primary care, and I did my residency in the South Bronx and then practiced primary care medicine in the South Bronx and in Chelsea here in Massachusetts, and the people that I was caring for were lower income, and so they didn't have the luxury of exercising, eating the right foods. They had a lot of stress, so it's hard for them to stop smoking, and I didn't really feel I was doing much to prevent disease in that way, so I thought, well, maybe if I go into the workplace, maybe I can prevent some illness and disease there by focusing on workplace exposures. And so it was at that point that I decided to go back to school and do a residency in occupational medicine. And so I enrolled at the Harvard School of Public Health and did an occupational medicine residency so that I could practice occupational medicine. And so that's that's how I got from primary care to occupational and environmental medicine. And then over the years, uh, occupational uh, environmental medicine became increasingly important uh, and increasingly recognized as a factor in human health. And so occupational medicine and environmental medicine sort of informally merged. And so now it's occupational and environmental medicine. And what kind of occupational hazards have you worked with over the years? I mean, we're, you know, we were talking a little before the show, and it sounds like you've traveled around a little bit and worked in different industries. I, I have. Uh, I've worked with a lot of different occupational hazards, including asbestos, silica, uh, I've visited manufacturing facilities where there were exposures to cobalt and tungsten carbide, beryllium. Uh, I've worked on construction sites where exposures were to concrete and cementitious material containing silica as well as volatile organic compounds. I've had the opportunity to do indoor air quality investigations in a variety of different settings, and these include commercial office buildings, schools, uh, hospitals, healthcare facilities, courthouses, and, and, and residential settings. So uh, along the way, I've b- 
became very interested in indoor air quality issues and have had the opportunity to participate in evaluations of indoor air quality. In those cases, I really need to work alongside an industrial hygienist because I'm not trained in doing the kind of air sampling uh, and testing that is important from an industrial hygiene perspective. I can go through a building and I can do a gross inspection and I can pick up areas of potential concern, but then to go back and do the actual testing itself, I'm not trained to do that. But what I often do in situations like that is I do look at the people who are working in those settings. And I've done a couple of many epidemiologic surveys in situations like that. I'm wondering, <clears throat> excuse me, what you're you know, when you, you've been in both settings, the occupational setting and factories and people out, you know, doing work that exposes them to environmental hazards, but you've also done some office buildings and maybe some residential type work. And we always talk about the fact that permissible exposure limits and TLVs may not be, are probably not appropriate for use in residential and, and, and office-type buildings. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, if that's, that's something you agree with. Uh, well, I, I think the whole thing is, you know, this business of TLVs is very complicated, and in some cases it doesn't make any sense. You know, first of all, in the industrial setting, the TLVs were never meant to draw a line between safe and not safe. They were levels that, first of all, were technically feasible, and second of all, were designed in an attempt to protect the most vulnerable in the working population. So people get this notion that TLVs, you know, if it's below the TLV, then it's safe. So, and that's not true. That is not necessarily true. The other piece of this that never made any sense to me is why do you have TLVs in a factory setting, but you don't have TLVs in an office setting? Mm -hmm. You know, what that seems to say is that somehow industrial workers are immune from certain effects of chemicals, whereas those of us who work in an office setting are not immune. And, and so that just sort of never uh, made made sense to me. But you you are correct. Threshold limit values, permissible exposure limits uh, are used for regulatory purposes in workplaces, but they don't translate into uh, office settings and into indoor air quality settings. And the EPA has some responsibility for that, but the EPA hasn't established guidelines for allowable exposure limits in an office setting to volatile organic compounds, for example, which is what comes up most often. And uh, and the same is true for mold. Now, what, what type of, um, first, with, you've done a lot with lung diseases. I know they're very common in occupational environments. And I'm wondering, is there any genetic predisposition to developing a lung disease, uh, you know, one person versus another? The answer is, 
is yes, there may be. And there are certain lung diseases for which we know there is a genetic predisposition. One is pulmonary beryllium disease. And certain genetic abnormalities have been identified in people who are exposed to airborne beryllium and go on to develop pulmonary beryllium disease. And I think the same is probably true for most other occupational, or certainly for many other occupational lung diseases. For example, you see evidence of asbestos-related disease that seems to occur in families. Hmm. And uh, there are a couple of families that have been identified. In fact, there's one here in the Boston area where siblings develop malignant mesothelioma. And malignant mesothelioma is caused by asbestos. It's a very rare tumor. It occurs in about 8% of asbestos insulation workers who you would expect would have the highest prevalence of malignant mesothelioma. So to find two cases in one family is evidence of a genetic predisposition. And in fact, a gene abnormality has been identified for that occupational cancer, that occupational lung cancer. Hmm. So yeah, I I think genetic uh, predisposition is an important factor. I I think you see that with cigarette smoking. In fact, I think for most, for many diseases, there is some predisposing genetic factor. And if you have the genetic factor on its own without the exposure, then that person may never develop the outcome in question, whether it's interstitial fibrosis of the lung or lung cancer. Uh, On the other hand, if you have the genetic predisposition and you also have the exposure, doesn't mean you're going to get the disease, but it means your risk is significantly increased. And alternatively, if you have the exposure and you don't have the genetic abnormality, most likely you're not going to get the, the disease. That doesn't mean, however, that we should be going around identifying genetic abnormalities so that we can weed out those people who happen to have those abnormalities and then expose everybody else at will. What You mentioned cigarettes. Go ahead. No, no, that's in, in my opinion. Okay. And, and you mentioned cigarette smoking, and that was a question I had. I, I used to teach AHERA courses, and then we, you know, we were in the EPA uh, model curriculum. They would say that you know, a um, cigarette smoker was 10 times more likely to develop lung cancer than one who didn't. And then you know, they talked about the combination of cigarette smoking and asbestos exposure. Um, I'm wondering, how much does cigarette smoking really affect people's chances of developing an occupational lung disease? Cigarette smoking has been shown to affect risk of developing uh, occupational lung disease, and this has been shown in uh, at least three, I mean, it's been demonstrated. Epidemiologic studies have shown increases in risk looking at cigarette smoke and exposure to the toxin in question for asbestos, and we know that an asbestos worker who smokes has an increase in risk for lung cancer that is what we call supra-additive. That means the two agents alone increase the risk by an amount that is greater than additive. It used to be thought that it increased the risk 
by an amount that was multiplicative. And now this, the data seem to be suggesting it's more super additive. Uh, the same thing is true for silica. People who are exposed to silica and smoke have a, appear to have, the data show that they have a super additive risk for developing lung cancer. And a, another very important association that has emerged over the last oh, I don't know, maybe 15 years now, 10 to 15 years, is the association between cigarette smoking and workplace exposure to vapors, gases, dust, and fumes, and the development of COPD. And because COPD is such a major public health problem in the U.S. anyway, in large part due to smoking, the additional contribution of workplace exposures is uh, is is very important to take into consideration in public health policies. And in the case of COPD and cigarette smoking, you see a super additive effect of exposure to the two agents alone as opposed uh, two agents together as opposed to either agent alone. So, so that combination is, is, is very important. What, what is COPD? Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease, I believe, is what the acronym stands for. And, and my mom has been diagnosed with that from cigarette smoking. What, what is that physically? Uh, physically, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is just what it says. It is a form of lung disease in which there is difficulty getting air, blowing air out of the lungs. So, so air is, there, is a, there is an obstruction to air getting out of the lungs. And obstructive lung disease can be reversible. Uh, that's what we see in asthma. You may see obstructive lung disease in asthma that's reversible, but because it's reversible, that is, it, you take a bronchodilator, medicine that opens up the airways and the obstruction goes away. In the case of COPD, it's fixed obstruction. You, people take medication for it, they take bronchodilators, and it helps, but it doesn't reverse the obstruction. And uh, it comes in two, or used to be spoken about in two forms. One was chronic bronchitic COPD, where the problem was with the airways themselves. We played chronic bronchitis, chronic inflammatory disease in the, in the airways, and that's what is thought to cause COPD. The other form is emphysema. And in emphysema, there is destruction of the air cells, the alveoli themselves, and so it's a, a destructive process of the lung tissue, which then results in obstruction. Now, many of our listeners um, perform indoor environmental quality remediation. So they, they may do mold remediation. They clean up after water damage, uh, sewage backflows. They may do lead abatement. They clean up after fires, etc. What What kind of tips would you give people who do that type of work for controlling the, the possible effects um, that they're, you know, the, the possible disease that their type of work may be related to? Well, I, I think 
the first and most important factor is education. I think workers who are doing any kind of remediation work need to be very carefully educated about the potential health risks of the, well, they need to be educated, first of all, about what's there. You know, what are the risks? What, 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 what exposures are they, they facing? What, what's in this, this um, basement that they have to go in and clean out? Um, secondly, educated about the adverse health effects of those potential, of, of those substances. And then thirdly, educated about how to protect themselves. What is adequate protection? What do they need to adequately protect themselves? And then also it's important, particularly with something like lead, to take that one step further, and that is how can they make sure to protect their families? Because they, they don't want to go in and be doing work with um, lead, let's say. And they wear, they don't have a, they're not provided a change of work clothes, so they wear their work clothes home, and they get home, and their kids come, you know, jump up on them, give them a hug, and the lead that may be on their work clothes is transferred to their children. So there are several different steps that need to be taken, in, in my opinion, to adequately protect remediation have workers, you... and unfortunately that often does not happen. Have you had any, you know, personal experience, or, or do you know others that have run into or, or um, have worked with people that perform mold remediation, water damage restoration, fire, and that they've developed an occupational disease? Yes, I have seen workers who were in a setting, and it's on a construction site, actually, in which there was mold, it was a very moldy, damp, wet space in which they were working. And they had some responsibility for cleaning up this workspace, although they were not mold remediation workers per se. And a number of those workers got sick, and a couple of those workers developed asthma. Hmm. And I followed those patients with asthma over a number of years following that exposure. So in that setting, even though these were construction workers cleaning up the mold, they were doing remediation work and in the beginning were not properly protected. And I've certainly seen situations of illness resulting from mold exposure in residential settings and and also in uh, office settings, not so much industrial for me that I've seen. You mentioned um, development of asthma, and we, we had Dr. Tina Raponin on the show from the University of Cincinnati uh, maybe a month ago now. She's done some interesting work with respect to that, you know, the development of asthma, and her her research was primarily with young children, and it indicated that there was at least some association between exposure to certain types of mold at a very young age, and the development of asthma. I wondered if you wanted to comment on that. Uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm familiar with that data, and I, I think it, it certainly makes sense because generally mold 
exerts its effect on the airways as a result of allergy or hypersensitivity to the antigens that are presented, and that can affect the airways at a very early age. And, you know, because you have young children who are rapidly developing, it impacts them much later in, in life. It has the same, the same mechanisms are operative when adults are exposed to mold in whatever setting. What? You know, for, for any period of time. If they, I, I've seen a number of patients, unfortunately, sadly, who live in apartments that are very damp, have leaky roofs, water leaking through the windows, and as a result of these exposures, living in these exposures over a period of time, they develop aggravation of pre-existing asthma. They develop new onset asthma. They develop a condition called hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which is an allergic condition that affects the lung tissue itself rather than the airways. Uh, you can get chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which may present as fibrosis of the lung. Uh, there are problems with sinusitis, rhinitis, pharyngitis, uh, a number of different effects of mold and dampness on the respiratory system. Uh, you know, the, the, the mold is problematic, but where you have a damp indoor environment, you also have problems with bacteria. You have problems with damp building materials that then off-gas volatile organic compounds as a result of the moisture and, and deterioration that is associated with the moisture. So, so there are all sorts of adverse health effects you can see with mold exposure. And, 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 and certainly I, it does seem that it has a greater impact on young children, infants and young children. And, you know, you mentioned... Um asthma, asthma development, and there's exacerbation of asthma. We know, you know, things like furry pets, dampness, contaminants, cockroach, dust mite allergen can all trigger uh, allergic reaction and asthma, exacerbation of asthma. What other maybe less known triggers uh, have you run into in your experience? Exposure to any kind of irritant can trigger asthma. For example, if you get caught in a traffic jam and you're behind a bus, depending on where you live, I guess, uh, the buses emit this just noxious material. And exposure to that can trigger or aggravate asthma if there happens to be, you know, a chemical spill near where you live or some sort of event that releases chemicals into the air, then those chemicals can aggravate asthma. For some people, being in newly renovated buildings, for example, where a lot of chemical products are used in renovation work, those chemical products off-gas uh, chemicals that can either cause asthma because they're sensitizers, or can aggravate underlying asthma because they're 
they're irritants. And one of the most common is a chemical known as diisocyanates. And diisocyanates are fairly ubiquitous. They're found in polyurethane floor refinishing materials. They're found in these foam products that you buy in a hardware store to do home repair work. One is called Gap and Cracks, or, yeah, I think that's the name of it, Gap and Cracks, which is manufactured by DuPont. Um, there are, are, are a lot of different foam products that are used in the home. So they can trigger asthma. Weather can trigger asthma. Cold air triggers asthma. For some people, hot, humid weather triggers asthma. For others, secondhand smoke triggers asthma. Uh, some people have asthma attacks if they're working in a workplace and they have a, a high exposure to uh, fragrances, you know, in the form of air freshers or air fresheners or deodorizers. The use of cleaning agents in the home. There was a study by Zoc that looked at. Uh, there are studies that have shown increased incidence of occupational asthma, new-onset occupational asthma, in cleaners, professional cleaners. Hmm. And so Zoc and others looked at the occurrence of asthma and asthma symptoms and treatment for asthma in non-professional cleaners, that is, people like you and me who may use aerosolized cleaning products in the home. And many of these aerosolized cleaning products are fragranced. And what he found in one study was that People who use an aerosolized cleaning agent four or more times a week in their home have a significant increase in risk for the development of new-onset asthma. Even the use of these aerosolized cleaning products greater than once a week in the home was associated with increased occurrence of wheeze and other symptoms of asthma. So... You know, so there are a lot of chemical products all around us that can aggravate asthma and even cause new onset asthma. Interesting. What we're going to do is we're going to stop and thank our sponsors. We're going to break for halftime. When we come back, I've got a couple additional questions on, on the fragrances and asthma, and we're going to talk a little bit about chemical sensitivities with Dr. Christine Oliver. We'll be back in 90 seconds. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com, count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, WolfSense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. 
Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. All right, we are back with the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Christine Oliver on the line. And, and Cliff, I'm, I apologize. I didn't give you a chance to jump in. Do you have any questions for the doc? Well, mine are more related to multi-chemical sensitivity, Joe. Um, I, I, doctor, uh, you know, there are natural products that have, you know, fragrances, essential oils, and, and, and so on and so forth. Do you think that naturally the derived fragrances are in general more less or equally likely to cause uh irritation sensitivities uh can you define what you mean by naturally derived um just you know naturally derived oils peppermint oil spearmint oil uh delimonene uh things like you know uh, well, I, I think for some that may may be true. Um, there have been a couple of studies that have been carried out. Ann Steinemann has done a lot of work looking at fragrances, both in the U.S. and also in Australia. And they looked at chemical ingredients in a number of different products. And delimonene was was among the most common in each of the studies that she did. And delimonene is a sensitizer. So if it's naturally derived, there may be some marginal benefit. You know, if you had to choose naturally derived delimonene or, you know, manufactured delimonene in a manufactured product, you, you might choose delimonene, but I think it's best to avoid either because they, you know, they are sensitizers. So I think it depends on which naturally derived product you're talking about. Uh, and in addition to that, what Ann Steinemann has found in her studies, and she just published an article in 2017 in which she touches upon this. It was published in Preventive Medicine Reports. And she looks at the off-gassing of volatile organic compounds by traditionally manufactured products, and she looks at it by category of product. And she also looks at so-called green or natural products. And there are potentially toxic emissions from fragrances that are used in so-called green products. And fragrances are used in certain green products. So I think we as consumers have to be careful about just grabbing anything off the shelf because it says green or natural. I, I think it's very important in this area, as in every other area, to read the labels. And I, I was just in Whole Foods and I found this laundry deter detergent, actually for purposes of using it in a slide and the talk that I'm going to give in a couple of weeks. And this says eco-wash, and it's in the, 
part of the aisle where there are green and natural products, but it's scented. So I, for me, I, I think the critical variable would be not whether it's all natural or whether it was manufactured by Procter & Gamble, but rather whether it's scented or unscented. That, 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 that would be my uh, red line, since we're talking about red lines these days. Okay. So, well, thank you. That, that's, that's how I would, um, would approach it. And I, I was just, might be a good time to mention this or not, but I was just reviewing an article in which Steinman related, I think it was Steinman. Anyway, she was talking about fragrance-free policies for workplaces and how secondhand smoke has eventually, was eventually banned from workplaces as it should have been. But she says now we should start thinking in terms of secondhand scents. Mm-hmm. Banned, banned secondhand, S-T-E-N-T-S, from all public places, which <laughs> I tend to agree with. <laughs> Okay. But but it, you know it's a it's a good um, campaign slogan. <laughs> well, let me let me go back for just a moment. And then I want to get I want to come back to the fragrances, scents, and chemical sensitivities. But before we do, there was one important question I think on on asthma, and I'm wondering what are your thoughts? It's, I'm I'm starting to have some thoughts after today's discussion about why there's such an increase in the number of people with asthma in the United States? I, I think the, the reasons are several. I think one is there's been a ballooning of chemicals produced and used in the United States over the past several decades. Uh, I think in, in, in the U.S., uh, there are a number of buildings that have poor indoor air quality for various reasons. You know, they, the issues may be water-related. They may be water leaks, water intrusion. Um, they may be the fact that the, the buildings are aging and the HVAC systems are not being properly attended to so that there is not enough fresh air being brought into workplaces, uh, fresh air is important to dilute any toxins that may be in the workplace. I, I think there appears to have been when, well, actually, I, I don't know if this is true. There's still a number of people in the U.S. who wear fragrance products. I, I don't know, quite frankly, whether that has increased or decreased over the period of time that the prevalence of asthma has increased. Air pollution has gotten worse over time. Uh, so I, I think those are some factors. I think maybe we as physicians are paying more attention to asthma, so maybe it's getting diagnosed more frequently now than it has been in the past, but I, I think a principal reason is increasing exposures to substances that can cause and or trigger asthma. And, and the other thing, or another piece of this, 
is most likely, in my opinion, related to climate change. And we know, for example, that pollen has the, the, the pollen season has increased in duration, and the pollen itself has become more virulent as a result of change in climate. You know, it's getting a little bit warmer so that the season for pollination is a little bit longer, and there are other variables that affect the the uh, potency of the pollen. So I think that may be playing a role as well. What Any thoughts on, on the hygiene hypothesis that maybe at a very young age we're not exposed to enough diverse microbial, um, whatever you want to call it, micro, microbial uh, particulate that we we need a little better exposure early on in life? Yes, I agree with that. I, I think that is correct. I do agree with that. I think we have sanitized ourselves into uh, in, 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 into a state of, well, certainly for young kids, increased prevalence of asthma. With regard to adults, I don't know the extent to which the increased sanitization has made a difference, except for two things. One, um, antiseptic agents to use on your hands, for example, Purell. It is everywhere. It's everywhere. You know, it's, it's in doctor's offices. It's in movie theaters. It's everywhere. Well, Purell is a very irritant and potentially sensitizing chemical. And so I think that may be contributing. There's been increasing use of a category of cleaners called quaternary ammonium compounds, which are disinfectants, and those compounds cause asthma, both as a result of sensitization and irritation. So I think we've developed a fetish about being antiseptic. So I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that is playing a role, both in young children, infants, and also in adults. I want to talk a little bit about chemical sensitivity and then I want to go back into your your presentation at the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council's Northeast Energy and IAQ conference that'll be um, beginning of May and you're the keynote there. I just want to make sure we mention that and, and thank Christy there for helping us get you on the show today. But uh, before we do, I want to kind of lay the grain groundwork a little bit. What is multiple chemical sensitivity? First, can you tell people what the theory is with respect to what that is and secondly is that recognized by by health insurers today as a, a diagnosis uh well first i think the the question is what is chemical sensitivity and or or, or well let's start with chemical sensitivity and okay. i'll give you my view which i think is it's a, it's certainly a mainstream I think it's a mainstream view, and chemical sensitivity is on a spectrum, in my in my view, in my experience, it, ranging from people who just get a little bit irritated when somebody is sitting next to them wearing fragrances. I got on a plane to fly to Toronto yesterday, a small plane, sat down in the aisle seat. The woman in the aisle seat across from me immediately whips out a jar of cream highly fragranced cream, lathers it all over her hands, 
and it was irritating to my eyes, and I don't consider myself really chemically sensitive, and it's in an enclosed space. This is a small airplane. They had closed the doors. So it ranges from people like me, maybe, who have mild chemical sensitivity to the other end of the spectrum, which is people who have multiple chemical sensitivity, which is much more extreme chemical sensitivity. There are a number of, I think there are seven clinical definitions of MCS, and the most reproducible definition and the validity of these different definitions uh, was examined by some workers at the University of Toronto And a 1999 consensus statement, which was published in the Archives of Environmental Health in 1999, set forth criteria that, in this study that looked at these seven different case definitions, it seemed to be, you know, among the most reliable. And this, there are six consensus criteria that define MCS. The first is that the symptoms are reproducible upon repeated chemical exposures. I think maybe the first is that the symptoms involve multiple organ systems. That really should come first instead of last. And then so two would be the symptoms are reproducible with repeated chemical exposures. Thirdly, the condition is a chronic condition. Fourthly, low levels of exposure, very low levels, consistent with levels of exposure that are found in the ambient environment that people without MCS would just, would would not even notice. Very low levels of exposure can cause symptoms. Uh, Fifth, the symptoms improve or resolve when the incitants are removed. They improve, they can resolve temporarily, but with re-exposure they recur. And then uh, finally, responses occur to multiple, to multiple chemically unrelated substances. Another criterion, which was part of the initial definition of multiple chemical sensitivity put forth by Mark Cullen in the mid-1980s, was an inciting exposure. That is, following generally at that time it was considered to be a relatively high-level chemical exposure, MCS develops uh, with the characteristics that we have spoken about. That is, the symptoms are multi-system. The symptoms occur with exposure not only to the initial inciting chemical but also to other unrelated chemicals. Symptoms occur in association with exposure at very low levels. The condition is chronic. Symptoms are reproducible with chemical exposures. And there was one other criterion, if I recall correctly, that was in the Cullen criteria, and that was that there are no medical tests that can be done to diagnose this condition. So essentially it is a diagnosis of exclusion. You can't have a blood test for an MCS titer. Mm. So, so that's the, the definition of, of MCS. But people can be affected. Well, uh, my 
own way of differentiating between somebody who is chemically sensitive and somebody who has MCS depends in large part on the number of body systems involved and also on the severity, but on the number of body systems involved. People who have MCS most typically have involvement of the neurologic system. Am I going on too long here? No, no, you're good. Um, Anyway, involvement of the neurologic system with headache, cognitive dysfunction, really difficulty functioning because of this. Secondly, respiratory system is involved. They may have symptoms of asthma or diagnosed asthma. Uh, Gastrointestinal symptoms occur fairly frequently uh, among my patients with MCS anyway. And then sometimes neuromuscular. But I, but the most important are neurologic and respiratory. Cliff, you had a follow-up? Uh, I do, doctor. Um, can you comment on, the, I guess, the psychological aspect of it um, in that if someone, honest, you know, I think in terms of the trigger, where if someone thinks that they're exposed, they will react in the same way as if they were exposed. Well, I, I think there are, when you ask me about psychological, for me there, there are two variations on a theme of psychological issues with regard to MCS. Uh, but with regard to the one that you mentioned, uh, sure. You know, I, I, I think for some people that that plays a role you know it's a self-protective mechanism you you walk into marshall's and i walked into marshall's and the the dyes that they use for the clothes there are just an abomination you can smell the formaldehyde and it irritates my eyes but so you walk into marshall's and, and you have a bad experience well even if marshall's gets rid of all of those clothes and brings in really high-end clothes where different dyes are used. If you walk into that store, it's, it's a, it can be a Pavlovian response. It, it, it certainly can be after, after a number of different experiences. But I, I don't think that's operative in, in, in most cases. I, I think it would be, I, I think it certainly is operative in certain situations. Uh, but I, I don't think we want to move to dismissing these reactions as Pavlovian because it will do a lot of people a, a lot of harm. But I, I think certainly in some cases that that can happen. With regard to the other psychological issue, I mean, MCS has a devastating effect on the mental health of people who have this disease because they become very isolated. They have to become very isolated. Now, that can change over time, you know, as they learn to manage their disease a little bit better. But it's, it's, it's a very difficult to, d- disease to deal with from a psychological point of view. You know, it's uh, an a- analog, I guess, would be, you know, someone with Parkinson's disease who can't get out of the house or uh, some other chronic disease. They can't leave their home. They're too disabled. 
I'm wondering. But, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm wondering, with respect to, to chemical sensitivities, are we beginning to understand, are there any good theories on why some people seem to be, you know, more likely to develop these chemical sensitivities than others? I think we do not have, uh, no, the, the answer to your question is no. Okay. The, the research that needs to be done to specifically elucidate mechanisms has, has not been done. And there are people now both in Canada and in the U.S. who are becoming more interested in looking at mechanisms. But to date, the funding hasn't been there because the lobby to get funding for people with MCS hasn't been there. There is some work that has been done, however, and some work has been done by William Meggs, who is a a physician and a professor of medicine in eastern North Carolina, and he did some work years ago which showed changes in the nasal mucosa of individuals with MCS. And there is increased recruitment of sensory neurons in the mucous membranes of the nose in people with MCS. There is loss of basement membrane, which provides protection in the nose of people with MCS. And and I think there are some analogies with this condition known as uh, uh, RADS, reactive airways disease syndrome. And what happened in the early stages of the definition of this disease is that there was a high level irritant irritant exposure. Bronchoscopy was done, biopsies were done, and it showed that the, the basement membrane and the mucous membranes of the airways in these people were disrupted. And so that disruption is likely one of the factors that makes people with asthma, particularly those who have occupational asthma, more sensitive to exposure to irritants, for example. And that's in the, in the airways. In the nose, the sensory neurons and the disruption of the membranes in the nose uh, also affect nerves, sensory nerves. And uh, so it's it thought that that has something to do with the development of MCS and that the limbic system of the brain plays a role in the development of MCS. Has a genetic defect uh, or, or abnormality been found? Not to my knowledge, but there are cases of MCS in families. So there may very well be some sort of genetic predisposition to development of this disease like most other diseases. Very interesting. Let's go to the roundup. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. All right. I think what I, I have one question I want to ask, and then Cliff, if you've got one, and then I want to finish up with uh, just letting. Uh, Dr. Oliver, add anything that we may have missed, but you're going to be speaking at the Maine Indoor Air Quality Conference on 
fragrance-related issues, and I'm wondering how how common do you find these people with reactions to fragrances in in your practice, and do we know how common it is in the general population? Uh, yes, we we have an idea how common it is in the general population, and and again, I go back to Steinemann and uh, a doctor Caress who have done work both in the United States and in uh, and in Australia looking at prevalence of fragrance sensitivity. And it's about 30 to 33% in both hmm. countries. So th- that's the broad strokes of the brush prevalence. And, and then it breaks down a little bit depending on what type of exposure you're talking about, what type of product you're talking about. But the overall... Uh, prevalence is about 30%. Okay, Cliff? So, that, so that's fairly high. And in terms oh. of my patient population, um, I, I would say it's probably about 30%. I, I, I don't think it's much higher than that. I, I, I think that reflects the patients that I see. I see. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Thanks, Joe. Doctor, uh, you commented that MCS can have a devastating effect on the um, mental health of uh, patients that that develop this. Can you comment on people that have a mental illness first, or you know whether that is depression or you know some sort of uh, you know, the, you know, some sort of treatment, psychological treatment, uh, you know, they've seen a psychiatrist or whatever, before they manifest the symptoms of MCS, whether those people might be more prone to it. I have not found that to be true in my own patient population. And there have been a couple of studies that ha- have looked at that and for the most part, the studies have not found that a psychiatric or psychological condition preceded in, in any meaningful way the subsequent development of MCS. So I, I, I have not found that to be the case. I, I will say that in my patient population, and this may not be reflective of the population in general, but there's a female predominance. And uh, it it seems to occur in women who are high-level achievers, you know, well-educated people, Um, you know, just just the opposite of, of someone who's depressed and sort of non-functional. These are people who were very active, nurses, teachers, administrators, before they became sick. So I have not found that to be the case. And and Um, there was a study, and I can't call it to mind right now, where they looked more specifically at neurologic factors as they related to MCS, and I don't remember right now whether they found that psychiatric or psychological conditions preceded the disease. They did find, as I recall, that psychological and or psychiatric components 
were important parts of the disease for some, but I just don't recall whether those conditions preceded the DMCS. And of course, if you don't have clear documentation of that, once a person develops an MCS, it's very hard to, to tease it all apart. Um, I guess just one one follow up in you know in terms of the uh, sensitivity of, of fragrance within the general population of thirty to thirty three percent does that fall out the same way where women are more sen- you know generally more sensitive than men or and you know do you, statistically do you have a, a number on that or or not uh, yeah if you'll just I have a startup in front of me. Um, so overall, it was about 30 to 33 percent. And in a survey that was done in the U.S. comparing uh, males to females, it was 38 point. Overall, it was 38.8 percent in men and 61.2 percent in women. And then, if you, you break it down by specific products, for example, scented products that others are wearing, it's 27. Point seven percent in men and sixty nine point six percent in women. Uh, air fresheners, twenty six percent in men, seventy two percent in women. So there's no doubt that women are affected to a greater degree than men. And is is that percent of is that self reported or is that diagnosed? Yeah, it is self reported. Yes, it is. It okay. is self reported. Okay, um, and what about on a medical diagnosis? Do you know what the numbers are there? I don't have that information broken down. Okay, we've got a, a text that says it, it's much lower. They're saying between two point five to three percent, but I can't can't verify Wait, that. Wait, two point five to three percent for what? For the medical diagnosis. There are figures from this CARA study that show two point five percent of the general population uh, in the U.S. has been diagnosed with MCS. Sounds very similar to what they're talking about. Yeah, so so that may be what they're referring to. And then this particular article goes on to look at people with MCS and asthma, uh, chemical sensitivity and asthma, and MCS. Well, I just said that, MCS with asthma. And those prevalence figures are higher. Yes, alone, that's what these data showed. It's it's not consistent with earlier surveys that showed from 12 to 15 percent of people. Well, that's 12 to 15 percent of people who self-report symptoms consistent with asthma. So, I see. you know, that's where where the difference. Well, we're running a little over. I don't want to hold you back from anything. Before we go, though, is is there anything you would like to add? Any any comments? Anything we missed? Well, I think the only thing I would like to add. To, and I'll, I'll try to do this quickly, and that is that I think we are now beginning to look at a lot of different issues in terms of the public health, which I think is very important. Fragrant sensitivity in terms of the public health, including in outcome people with multiple chemical sensitivities, rather than focusing on what has previously been the of primary concern to people who do occupational environmental medicine, and that is more traditional occupational illness and disease. And I think it's important that we broaden that scope and, and begin to think more in terms of the public health and individual 
occupational and environmental diseases as they relate to the public health. Well, thank you for that. And thanks so much for joining us. It's been fascinating, and um, I'm really glad you were able to stay for the hour. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. You're welcome, Dr. Christine Oliver. Thanks for joining us this week. It was a great show. Cliff, the Z-Man Zlotnick, as always, thank you for your assist on the show. At the controls, John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll be back next Friday at noon. I believe we've got Ken Larson and Pete Consigli. They're going to be back from the RIA conference, and then we're going to have Ed... Ed Cross, the uh, restoration attorney, and we've got uh, quite a gang. Who, who was the fourth person there, Cliff? Peter Crosa. Oh, yeah, Peter Crosa, our insurance guy. Uh, looking forward to that. So come back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening. <laughs>